Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast. I'm Francisca Cosman, your host, and thank you so much for coming back. Today we have such an exciting episode, and make sure to listen until the end because I have some really fun announcements for you and ways for you to participate in a future episode. Just before we start, I want to remind you to check out some of the other episodes that we have released recently on this show and on some of the other Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts. Here we go. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today with us, we have Carly Chadash, a licensed social worker and sex therapist who also happens to be the director of the local Lower Marion Community Mikvah that is part of my local Jewish community. Carly is very innovative or with it when it comes to creating trainings and being very progressive on the forefront of making sure that the mikvah experience for the women who attend this mikvah and that they're having the best possible experience in an emotional, psychological, mental, that everything is all beautiful. And so people can't later say, mikvah traumatized me and now I don't want to do mikvah. So you take this very seriously. Welcome onto the show, Carly. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for reaching out to me and really encouraging me to do this episode because it's a very important topic. It's not something I loved doing or talking about. My perspective has shifted over the last few years, and I am so excited to bring this topic onto this podcast because it is so messy and complicated, and COVID also threw a wrench into the whole process. And I love that your background in clinical social work and sex therapy adds to the work you do for the community. Just thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think that when I initially started working as the MICFA director, I don't think there was as much of a recognition that mental health and mikvah intersected so severely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that has come from me holding that dual role as mikvah director and also social worker is the recognition that mikvah impacts so many people's mental health and mental health impacts women's relationship with mikvah. And we've been really uh, lucky to have a group of attendants who are so eager to learn and to accommodate um, in our local mikvah. And I've also been fortunate enough to participate in trainings for mikvahs all over the world in uh, the intersection of mental health and mikvah. If I were to kind of consolidate my goal into one sentence, it would be that the women using the mikvah should feel like they're the ones in charge of both their, their mitzvah observance and their experience at the mikvah. And if educating attendants and mikvah directors in the role that they're really meant to have halakhically helps that happen, then who am I to not talk about that? Love it. Okay, so let's get started and backtrack a little bit. Tell us what have the standard practices, what have they been until, you know, a couple of years ago? What are those discrepancies in terms of mental health and how it goes both ways? I think that until fairly recently, there has been this kind of like Hamish, small world, rural, like mom and pop shop operation of mikvah, where you have like this mikvah, it's not necessarily the most beautiful building, and there's an apartment on top, and the mikvah attendant lives upstairs, and people come and they go to the mikvah. And, you know, they take a bath and they do all of their preparations. And then when they're ready to go to the mikvah room, the mikvah attendant like kind of interrogates them and gives them, you know, the rundown of like, well, did you do this? Did you do this? I remember when we lived in Israel, it was like they had a song that they were going through. Like, did you clean your ears? Did you clean your eyes? Did you clean your nose? Did you clean your belly button? Did you? And it's like, I know, I know what I need to do. Like, I'm calling you to the room because I'm ready. And if I'm not ready, like, that's on me. That's not on you. Um, and I, I think that now the shift is moving to, you know, we want to elevate the mitzvah. So we want to have these beautiful professionally run mitzvahs. Um, what ended up happening when you have this kind of intrusiveness from a mitzvah attendant with a woman is that a woman's spiritual experience was interrupted by a very human and dehumanizing experience with an attendant. A lot of people don't think about mikvah in terms of power. 
But what you have is a situation where you have a woman who is completely unclothed. She's naked. She's wearing a robe. She doesn't have makeup on. She doesn't have jewelry on. She doesn't have any of the things that we like use to shield ourselves against the outside world, protecting her. And then you have a fully clothed woman walk into her space and ask her if she's done a mitzvah correctly. (laughs) Recipe for disaster. Creates a really uncomfortable power differential for the woman using the mikvah. It's something that um, there was actually a recently a study done at Hofstra University that, you know, to me, I was reading it. I'm so glad they actually did an official study. But it said that women's mikvah experiences are deeply impacted by the interactions that they have with mikvah attendants. And I was like, yeah, like it's the only person that you're interacting with usually when you're at a mikvah is the attendant. So if the attendant is going to be intrusive and ask questions and ask you to like remove birthmarks, which are impossible to remove, then you're going to have a negative experience. I think that now with the professionalism of the field and the the proliferation of education that we have and education materials that we have, mikvah attendants aren't just lay people anymore. You know, in my perspective as a mental health professional, they're the line of first defense for a lot of women who are struggling with issues that the public can't see. Sometimes they can be trusted confidants. Sometimes they can be... What do you mean when you say they're on the first line? So... The nature of mikvah is that it's an extremely vulnerable situation for a woman to go and do this mitzvah with another person as the witness there. Um, some mikvahs do make allowances for women to toivel or dunk without an attendant in the room. Um, and some mikvahs, you know, even if the attendant isn't in the room, it's a very emotional experience for a lot of women. A lot of women will shed tears. Can you explain why it's emotional? Give us the basics here. <laughs> sure. So I, it's a time of transition. So in, you know, in Judaism, mikvah is a transition from one spiritual state to another spiritual state. From tamay to tahor, being, being forbidden to your husband to being allowed. Being permitted to your husband or permitted. Be, I wouldn't even say permitted to. Um, I would say, you know, from being forbidden to have sexual relations to being permitted to have sexual relations. I don't like the idea of a marriage also being a power differential. So I wouldn't say like permitted to versus, but women who follow the laws of family purity or tahara samashbacha, they, they abstain from sexual intimacy during the time that they have their period and the week immediately following their period. And then um, engage in sexual activity if they want from the time that they go to the mikvah until the beginning of their next period. So it's a time of spiritual transition. It's a time of reunification. It's also, there's a lot of Kabbalistic ideas about the mikvah being a spiritual representation of the womb and a rebirth, a spiritual rebirth for women. It can be a time of immense loss for some women. Um, For example, women who are experiencing infertility or pregnancy loss. And it can be a time of intense hope, sometimes for those same women and for other women. Um, For women who are premenopausal, it can be a time of a lot of uncertainty, whether this is going to be their last time going to the mikvah in their adult years. And it's also a time of reunification for people who are excited and anticipating what the reunification physically with their spouse is going to be like. And that can cause a lot of emotions. However, because of the nature of how much physical preparation is done for the mikvah, there's also a lot of vulnerability with the self having to give yourself, you know, you soak in a bath. Um, there's usually large mirrors around for women who have uncertainties with their own body image or they aren't sure how they feel about their bodies. Um, it can be very triggering to be in a room with bright lights surrounded by mirrors and being told you have to check to make sure you don't have any unwanted body hair. For example, in order to use the mikvah, anything that you wouldn't want between your body and the water has to be removed. So for, I would say the majority of women, that means the body hair that one would generally remove, piercings, makeup, contact lenses, jewelry, and the purpose of that spiritually, we might understand. We might understand that because it's like a rebirth, we don't want anything between us and the mikvah waters. 
But cognitively, that might be really hard for people to see you in such a vulnerable state or for one person to see you in such a vulnerable state. And then when the mix attendant enters the room and and you know verbally intrudes or physically intrudes into your space, it might go from this really introspective spiritual experience to this really unhealthy, un, you know, in, unpleasant experience where, you know, you might have to hype yourself up to do this. And then all of a sudden you have some, someone intruding and you're like, hold on, like, it's hard enough for me to do this alone. I do not want to do this with another yeah. person here. And I would add more to it. It's the concept of everything is always private, but suddenly this person knows you may or may not uh, engage in sexual activity tonight. They may know that you are not pregnant. Maybe you want people to think you are pregnant or at least hope that you might be in the first trimester and not showing. It's in a way a public, it's a shared experience. I'm going to want to talk about recognizing lumps and cancer. And the other one is where the mikvah lady can be in a space to recognize abuse or something unhealthy for a woman that doesn't feel safe to go home to, which I'd like to bring up. But before we get into that, what would you say the Kala experience should be like ideally? And what do we hope for that first time dunk that's during the day in anticipation for a wedding for the first time for a woman to be intimate with sometimes a stranger, sometimes a best friend before there's any touch involved? Let's talk about that for a little bit. So I'm so happy you asked this question. This is the exact question that I ask attendants when I train them. So we do a visualization exercise where I ask mikvah attendants what their experience was like the first time they went to mikvah. And they usually share. And it's so beautiful. Some of them are converts. And so the first time they went to mikvah had nothing to do with marriage or sex. And I love hearing their perspective because it's so different than what we generally associate mikvah with. Can I stop you right there? So that always bothered me because the rabbis have to be present during that dunk. They have to be the witnesses. And how does that work with Tineas? That always bothered me. So there's a few ways rabbis do it. Our mikvah we don't use for conversion. So I can't speak to what our mikvah policies would be or um, what best practices are. But I have heard that that either the railing is built in such a way that when you put a towel over it, the rabbi can really only see from the neck up, which I can attest to at our mikvah when there's a towel laid over it. If the attendant stands in a specific spot, you really can only see from the neck up. And halachically, the only place the attendant is supposed to be looking when a woman is in the pool is from the neck up to make sure that her hair completely submerges under the water. And that is the bottom line role of a mikvah attendant. There is no other role of a mikvah attendant at the mikvah other than to ensure a complete immersion in the mikvah pool. And I think that's something that is really lost in translation and has been lost over so many years that attendants feel that it's their role to make sure someone has what they would call a kosher tevila. But what's a kosher tevila? A kosher tevila is a tevila, a, an immersion where a woman's head is fully submerged under the water. Um, and it would take 51% of a woman's body being covered in mud for her immersion to be not kosher. So let's put that on the side because I think it's a really important point. Um, and I want to make sure that it's said out loud. Um, so when it comes to conversions, I've heard of mikvahs where women will wear like a loose sheet around their bodies um, so that the rabbi can't see her body. Um, and then under the water, she'll kind of like loosen the sheet to make sure that the water touches her all over her body. Um, or, you know, when there's a railing that the rabbi can just make sure. Also, it's not the same kind of experience as going in for uh, tevila for Tarasa Mishpacha. The rabbi, like the, the rabbis will pop their head in the room and then leave immediately as soon as the woman's submerged. They don't even wait for her to come back up above the water. It's it's still a very vulnerable experience that I'm super uncomfortable with when I think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I would hope that people who are converting to Judaism, you know, they're doing it because it's their choice. And they're choosing all of it. You know, when I think about all of the other steps that people have to go through to convert to Judaism, the idea that a male has to have a circumcision you know, as an adult, which me with a moil, there, you know, there's no anesthesia, you know, there's a lot of things that are uncomfortable about those times of transition as well. 
I think that being fully informed and having informed consent about every step of the process, that's the goal. And if somebody chooses to go to the mikvah in front of a basin because that's what they have to do in order to become a Jew, then as long as it's their choice, then that's great. Let's go back to the first experience when you do the trainings, the kala. A lot of women will say that, you know, I'll ask them, what, what do you wish your first experience was like? What would you want for a daughter or a sister or, you know, a daughter-in-law? Like, what would you want their experience to be like? And all of them say that they want to feel safe. That safety in the mikvah, confidence that they're going to be able to do this mitzvah for the next 20 to 30 years. And, you know, the excitement and the anticipation and nervousness should be about what happens after mikvah. It shouldn't be about going to the mikvah itself. And I think that the best way to kind of make that shift and, and help that happen is by increasing agency in the woman going to the mikvah and helping her know that she has a voice and that she can use it. And if she knows that the job of an attendant is only to make sure that her hair is fully submerged, then the attendant doesn't even need to come into her room. The attendants go into women's rooms? Sometimes in some mikvahs, they'll like, they'll want to look at your nails. They'll tell you to cut them shorter. They'll, they'll want to look at your feet. You know, I had a mikvah attendant once who licked her finger like that and like went to scrub something off of the top of my foot. (laughs) And I was like, I feel like I need to take a shower again now because now your saliva is on my foot. And like, you didn't ask me if you could do that. And if you would have asked me, I would be like, absolutely not. Please get out of here. I would like another attendant. You know, I was newly married and I didn't know better. And it was in Israel. I didn't, I, you know, my Hebrew. That I was going to ask you, who was that in Israel? My Hebrew wasn't yeah. like the, the, the best. I probably, I could have, I could have engaged in conversation with her like now when I have more, much more confidence, 10 years of marriage under my belt. But like at that point, there was no way. So how do we invite more agency to that first experience and to all the experiences to follow? I think that there needs to be more awareness on the, for the attendants about what their true role is at the mikvah and where their responsibility lies and where a woman's responsibility lies. You know, what we don't ask people about like kashras, if we wanted to use like a, an analogy If you're going to eat at someone's house, you trust that their food is kosher (laughs) and and you see them washing dishes. You're not going to be like every step. Is that the milk sponge? Is that the fleshic sponge? You know, is that water too hot? Is it Yatsalit as well? Are you trafing up? Like, could you imagine in any other mitzvah if we had somebody that was that intrusive? It, It would be absurd. And in for some reason, over the years, mikvah has shifted to a place where the attendants feel the sense of achrayas responsibility in ensuring that a woman is having this dunk that is like beyond what is absolutely required by halacha. And making sure that attendants are aware that as long as they are there to watch someone dunk and make sure that their hair is fully submerged, they're doing their job. And a mikvah attendant's job is to be there as a witness but it's not there to be as an active participant. It shouldn't feel like a shared experience for the woman going to the mikvah. Moving on, what are some of the important things that you deliver in the trainings to the mikvah besides for your only, your one and only job is to make sure that hair is submerged fully? Right. So um, it's really hard to give over the training about your one and only job is this, while at the same time, making sure that the attendants know that they are a line of first defense for mental health and physical health in the community. Like you said, mikvahs, you know, in our mikvah, we have resource folders in each of the preparation rooms that have resources in them for domestic violence. It has instructions for how to do a breast self-exam and um, resources for mental health, for uh, fertility and pregnancy loss and a few other resources for local organizations that can be places for support for a woman. So, you know, 
this comes up frequently. What does an attendant do if a woman's body is covered in what look like two week old bruises? What is her job? Is her job to say nothing? Is her job to then run and call the rabbi? Is her job to call the police to ask the woman? And so Shalom Task Force frequently comes to the trainings that I do. I do trainings through the Orthodox Union for mikvahs. And Shalom Task Force says, you know, the safest thing that you can do for that woman is really to say nothing. And if she offers that she's experiencing domestic violence at home, then know what resources to send her to. Give her Shalom Task Force's number. But don't call the rabbi because that could put her in further danger. Don't call the police because that can put her in further danger. Ask her if she feels safe to go home. And if the answer to that is yes, let it go. And if you see her at carpool and if you see her at the supermarket, your job is to pretend that that night never happened. And that's something that's really hard for an attendant to hold because it's the recognition that it's not about them. It's about the woman in front of them. And I think that it comes with practice being able to let go. And I hope that more practice in being able to let go will in turn make the mikvah a safer place for women to self-disclose because they'll have access to those resources and they'll know that a mikvah can be a source of comfort and strength and agency, not just in mikvah and the mitzvah itself, but outside of the mikvah when they're navigating in the world. Thank you for talking about that. Now on a lighter, more maybe even comical note, but I love to bring finances into the conversation always. I was talking about it with my mother. I asked her if she had any questions she'd like to submit for this episode. Oh, and I also posted on Facebook. How is the mikvah supported? I know in Israel, it's more publicly funded by the government. So there may be a suggested donation or maybe 10 shekels or free with a suggested donation. I know in Moscow, at least a couple of years ago, it was suggested Tzedakah suggested donation. I know here in Philadelphia and in other communities around in the United States, there is a, a dunk fee. Now, do those fees cover the costs or is it uh, subsidized by the community and community members? And then I would like to also address the client dynamic. As you mentioned earlier in this episode, if I'm showing up and I'm paying a fee, I want this all to be an experience where I'm completely supported and safe and not where there may be complications, maybe people not arriving on time or making comments or the hot water is not available. I'm not even sure what other issues may come up, but that's just an example. That actually has happened. The things that you never realize are going to come up. You're like, no, the, the machinery is supposed to work all the time, but machinery is limited. The women of the community are really strong and, you know, they'll do what they have to do in order to keep the mitzvah, which I think is such a beautiful thing about the women of, of Klai Yisrael. So how is mikvah supported? So those are great questions. Our mikvah is funded completely by membership fees as well as usage fees. That covers our operational expenses. We have a women's mikvah with 10 preparation rooms and two mikvah pools, including a pool and a preparation room that are completely um, handicap accessible for the differently abled. Um, we are the only mikvah in the greater Philadelphia area that has a fully accessible mikvah pool and preparation room, which we're really, really proud of. We have a men's mikvah and the operation costs of the men's mikvah, the usage fees from men using the mikvah help to subsidize the cost of running the women's mikvah, which is how it was created. It, that was an intentional creation. And then we have a Keelan mikvah. We are very, very lucky that our membership fees and our usage fees really do cover our entire operational budget. Our mikvah was built um, in our fourth year of operation here. The previous mikvah was in was very old. It was in a lot of disrepair. I don't know if you remember it. I, it was oh hard. my gosh, yes. And that's why we donated at the time. It was really hard, but it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to participate in building a mikvah. And I'm so happy we did it. Yeah, yeah. And we're really grateful. We had over 250 families from our community who really stretched themselves and donated. So we've raised 
uh, like $3.5 million. We still have another $500,000 that we have to raise in order to complete the MICVA project, but we're confident that we're going to get there. What's left? Can I ask? So we still have another $500,000 on the mortgage that we need. We're getting pledges and it's a commercial mortgage. So interest rates are high and we want to be able to put the money towards keeping the building beautiful, making sure it's pristine and not paying the bank the interest that we owe them, meaning that paying off the loan sooner will lower drastically the amount of interest. And do the mikvah attendants get paid? Our attendants get paid. It's not a lot. I would say they are majority volunteer and uh, the amount that we pay them is really nominal. It is a token of our gratitude. But it's important to us that they feel that gratitude and that they feel that the job that they're doing is important not because of how much they're getting paid, but because they are getting paid, that it's a priority for the mikvah to make sure that people, I'm a big believer people should get paid for any job that they're doing, no matter how small or how much they love doing it. I think that paid labor is always better than unpaid labor. Thank you. Well, you might join everyone here on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So the second question that you had was about the experience of somebody coming and paying and wanting to make sure that the facilities are beautiful. And so to that, um, I actually, I'll share something that I share with my mikvah attendants when I do trainings. So in 1998, there was a pamphlet published by the RCA uh, that was called Ideas for Your Mikvah from the Experience of Others. And basically, they compiled advice from 50 McVows in the United States and Canada. And I can read some highlights for you because the whole thing is just really like a little comical. Um, and we can see how far we've come. So um, a few of the recommendations were that mikvahs should have gifts for kalas, meaning like a basket with candles and lotions and nice smelling perfumes, that there should uh, be cleaning supplies in the building to make sure that the prep rooms were cleaned in between users by the attendant, that the mikvah pool should be heated. So back to your point, that there should be a portable phone jack in the preparation rooms. I don't know if you're, I don't know the age of your listeners. I don't know if anybody knows what a phone jack is, but it was basically like a hole in the wall that you would plug a cord in for a phone. So that the idea was that there would be one phone in the building that could go from room to room. So that if somebody had a halachic question to ask a rabbi, they would be able to plug in the phone into the wall in their room and call the rabbi. Like our mikvah has Wi-Fi. The idea that somebody wouldn't have a cell phone at the mikvah to be able to call someone is like, it's very comical. And that there should be a training course for mikvah attendants in cities where an attendant was necessary because 50 years ago, the idea was... You went with a friend to the lake. You went with a friend. Yeah, that's how it started in Philadelphia also. You would call a friend and be like, can you bring me to the mikvah? And they would take you to the mikvah. Or if there were two women that needed to use the mikvah, one would be the attendant for the other, and then they would switch. And then this one was my favorite, that the mikvah attendant should wear a uniform that's similar to a housekeeper in a hotel. (laughs) You know, like how far have we come? You know, I know you're from Moscow and the stories of the women from the Soviet Union that used to get axes and hatchets on their wedding night to use to break the ice to be able to go to the mikvah. Well, they probably didn't do it on the wedding night. (laughs) Within the week. Right, do it in the week. But they would have to travel by train in order to get to the mikvah sometimes overnight. And then there's this beautiful safer that talks about some of these women's experiences. And one of them said, they were never afraid of dunking in the icy water. That was never the fear. The fear is that they wouldn't dunk straight down And they wouldn't be able to find the opening that they had created in the pool. Well, when that's the fear, then you're not scared of the cold water. (laughs) But, you know, I think that remembering where we came from in that sense is so important in our perspective as women that use the mikvah to be able to recognize how lucky we are to have these beautiful buildings where, you know, there's a fountain and there's music playing and the water's warm and it's clean and you can leave your towel in your prep room because someone's going to come and sweep it away and take it to the laundry for you. And I think that's a perspective that's really important to maintain as someone using the mikvah and a chizuk about how far we've come. Philadelphia was one of the first established Jewish communities in the United States. 
And women used to go to the Delaware River to dump because there was no mikvah here. And when you think about that, you know, at night, it's a major boat, you know, exchange where boats were coming into the port. This is the Jewish community in the old city in Philadelphia. So you're talking about like at the Delaware River, there's like still the port there where you can go and visit the old Navy boats that are still docked there. Um, you can take tours of them. And the idea that women would go and dunk in the mikvah there, you know, choppy water, there could be sailors a few yards away on a boat that the idea that you could be seen. And now we have these secure, we have a security guard, we have a beautiful facility, and overall, our physical safety is much more taken care of. And I think that the mikvah also needs to be a place of emotional safety. Like you said, every person coming to the mikvah should be treated like they are the expert in their own avoda. And it shouldn't be something that's superimposed on them by an attendant or by a, by somebody who has an expectation of what this person's tevila should look like. I'd like to also talk about some women needing to lower their standards because they're not always in the ideal state. And there are different considerations. And I know women need to ask Shilas for themselves. Examples like gel, nail polish that's done freshly, or even non-gel polish. Can you give some examples of other things that women may be able to get a head tear for if this is something really hard for them when coordinating their beauty lifestyle needs with mikvah? Right. So I think that um, there's two pieces to this. I think that from an agency perspective and asking the, you know, asking your questions to whichever halakhic authority you go to, it's always beneficial to ask. So this comes up around things like you said, nail polish, um, eyelash extensions are another one. Microblading is another one. This also comes up in terms of healthcare. So if you have somebody who is having cancer treatment and has a pick line for their chemotherapy or is having radiation and has a temporary tattoo, someone with a cast because they broke a bone, you know, there are considerations in this in beauty and also in healthcare. And it's always worthwhile to ask um, rather than to suffer in silence. That's piece number one. When it comes to things like beauty, I think that there's also this immense fear that other people will notice that somebody doesn't have their eyelash extensions or somebody doesn't have their nails painted. And I think that that's something that can be worked through from like a mental health perspective of like, what purpose is having these beauty treatments doing for you? And is it okay and safe for you to allow yourself to be vulnerable by taking them off? For some people, the answer is going to be no. But I think for the vast majority of people, it is healthy to have a space to be able to take off all of those external markers and to be able to be comfortable with yourself. And if mikvah can help be the channel for that in a healthy way, then I would love to see that world where that can be the catalyst. I think it's designed to be the catalyst. Like, you know, the mikvah is compared to a womb. A baby is born with nothing. You know, we are, we have this opportunity to be reborn. And if that, if being reborn means taking off our eyelash extensions and nail polish, then can we turn it into something that's beautiful and an opportunity to be safely vulnerable in an environment where you feel supported with yourself and by Hashem instead of it being this like superimposed expectation? As a therapist, what are helpful things to say to a woman who hates the mikvah experience and the beautiful baths do not make it better? She just does not like the experience of having to go somewhere at night, potentially deceive her kids about why she has to leave, you know, 5.30 p.m. in December, and it messes up with her whole schedule. She has to take off her nail polish, her makeup. She just finds the whole experience to be very bothersome. She's uninterested. If this could be done in a more convenient way, maybe I'd do it. But don't tell me it's beautiful. Don't tell me it's inspiring. And, and th- don't tell me I have marriage issues <laughs> because I don't like the mikvah. So what would you tell a woman like that? So I think that the last piece that you said is so important um, because I think that people often superimpose mikvah and marriage and there are two separate mitzvahs. You know, mikvah and sex are two separate mitzvahs. People are like, I really want to go to the mikvah, but I don't want to have sex tonight. And I'm like, great. 
go to the mikvah and don't have sex tonight because they are two separate mitzvahs and you can separate them. Um, and that's where increasing agency comes in, just like with any other mitzvah. Sometimes you light candles Friday night and you have the tears flowing and you're like, I feel so close to Hashem and I'm davening for all of the things that I need. I'm davening for my great, great grandchildren that I don't even know. And, and it's your spiritual experience, right? And sometimes you light Shabbos candles and you're like, okay, the kids are pulling on my skirt and the table's not set and the floor's not swept. And, but like, I know that I have to light candles right now because I am in the 18 minutes. And if I don't do it right now, I am going to be lighting an extra Shabbos candle for the rest of my life. And, you know, mikvah is the same way. We can't expect every time we do a mitzvah to be this spiritual, beautiful, all encompassing experience. Sometimes it's just something that we have to get through. And that's in, you know, in a therapist term, that's called radical acceptance. That we're going to ex- accept radically that we might hate going to the mikvah, but if we see it as something that we have to do because it's part of our value system, then we're going to do it. Okay, schoolos, let's just go through this. There is a concept of dunking in your ninth month of pregnancy, and that if somebody dunks after you, it's a school for them to have a child. Did I make this up? You didn't make it up. There's actually no source for the second school you mentioned, um, somebody dunking after someone in their ninth month. The dunking in the ninth month is a Sephardi segula. There is a source for that. And there's a strong Masora tradition for that as well. Our mikvah actually does not allow a pregnant woman to dunk at the mikvah because liability. liability is certainly part of the consideration. Our insurance agent would have a fit if, and, and we, we, God forbid, we do not want somebody to slip and fall in their ninth month. It's also not only from a liability perspective, for a woman who is going through fertility treatment or a woman who has just experienced fertility loss, you know, we try to make sure no one sees anybody else at the mikvah or in the parking lot or in the waiting room, but we can't guarantee it. And for somebody who halachically has an obligation to go to the mikvah, to see somebody who's going because of a segula, that that's something that we feel like we don't want to take responsibility for. I'll also say about the segula of somebody dunking after someone in their ninth month, I'll use some self-disclosure here. I um, had four years of fertility treatment before I had my oldest son. And I was the last one in my group of friends to have a child. And I went with every single one of my friends after they, when they were in their ninth month, I went like from being married year two to year four and a half when I got pregnant, like I went with every single one of my friends and it never worked. And, um, there are for some people who, there are some people who do get pregnant after doing the segula. And there are many people like me who don't get pregnant after doing the segula. And there is a serious risk that someone's relationship with mikvah will break down because they don't experience a perceived success after dunking because of a segula. And I think that that risk is really high. And I personally feel that there are a lot of other levels of hishtadlis that people can do and a lot of other ways to kind of create this level of devakis uh, closeness with Hashem outside of mikvah in order to feel like you're doing this hishtadlis. Um, and I, I, I don't think that it's good to rely on a segula for something like that. Well, thank you for sharing with us. I think that your personal story 100% adds to the success of the work you're doing because of your personal experience, your professional experience, and now the experience of running a successful mikvah. What what's going on in Israel? Is there a way to improve it in Israel? So the OU isn't the only organization that is doing mikvah trainings. The Eden Center in Jerusalem is also doing phenomenal trainings for mikvah attendants. Um, the official mikvahs that are registered with the the state in Israel, I believe that they are starting to not mandate, but strongly encourage attendants to, to go to at least one of these trainings. And they're also, um, making it, making their have legal ramifications. If 
a woman requests something at the mikvah and she is met with something that would be like indignation or a refusal from the attendant. Um, so I think that things are moving, but as with all things in Israel, things tend to go very slowly. And I think that the biggest change is better education for both the attendants, but also the women using the mikvah, that they have a voice and should be confident about asking for what you need in order to improve your experience. Let's talk about the whole area of privacy. It's so private, yet in a way, it's a shared experience. There's a lot of logistics that are involved. Is this something you share with people when it involves eating by them Friday night or if you're staying by your in-laws and as a clinical social worker, what what is your advice for women going from never dealing with this to now this is their life and they have to navigate so many new dynamics on top of the regular dynamics of married life and in-laws? I love this question so much. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of going to the mikvah on a Friday night, uh, but going on a Friday night is such a beautiful it is a shared experience on a Friday night because all of the women arrive to make that at the same time. And that, you know, they're schmoozing it. Now they're schmoozing in the parking lot because of COVID or they were schmoozing in the waiting room. And it's like this great equalizer where you have women from all different ranges of religious observance. Some women will come in pants. Some women will come with their hair covered. Some women will come without their hair covered. Some women will come, you know, we've even had women come in a car on a Friday night to our mikvah. And it's such a beautiful representation of all of the women who want to keep this mitzvah. And it's not, like you said, it's not secret. So the first piece of advice I would give is to separate out the idea of private versus secret. It's not a secret that a Jewish married woman who can, who identifies as Orthodox is using the mikvah. That's something that everybody knows that if someone identifies as Orthodox, then the chances are it's most likely that they have been to the at some point in their marriage. However, it is private. So you asked about specific experiences. My Kala teacher gave me really good advice, which is something that I give over to any Kala that I teach. Sometimes women who are using the mikvah will call me and be like, I have to go Friday night. What do I do? And I'm like, let me give you this advice. If you can tell one person that you need to go to the mikvah and it will make you feel more tzniyas, like more private in your experience going, then tell them. One time we were away for Shabbos and I had to go on a Friday night and I told my, we were staying not at my best friend's house because that probably would have felt uncomfortable for me to share that with her, but we were staying at her neighbor's house. And I told, I had to go to the mikvah. Like, how am I going to sneak out? We're in a different city. I don't know how to make an appointment. I don't know how to do. And she was like, great, we'll go for a walk and I'll walk you there. She told her husband, we were going for a walk. We probably wouldn't be home when he got home from Shul. It was before any, either of us had children. And it, it made it so much easier to go to the mikvah because I had a friend with me who could literally show me the way. I have a whole slew of excuses up my sleeve. If anybody wants to reach out, you can share my email address on your podcast. What about mothers and mothers-in-law? So I think that that's very personal and it depends on your relationship with your mother or your mother-in-law. For a lot of mothers and mothers-in-law, it would give them nachas to know that you are prioritizing this mitzvah and you're not pushing it off because of a sense of feeling uncomfortable. Like I said, the separation of mikvah as a mitzvah and sex is something that I think everybody needs to experience. And just because you're going to the mikvah, doesn't mean that everybody knows what you're doing that night when you get home, because that is very private and that is very secret, except for between you and your husband. Where going to the mikvah, it's it's a mitzvah that you that you do that sometimes has a relationship with sex and sometimes doesn't. It's funny you mentioned how everyone's there on Friday night because it seems like on Friday night, a lot of the things many people may be OCD about when it comes to Friday night or sometimes, you know, a second night yantif dunk, everything's out the window. So shouldn't that relax women a little bit? Well, I think that that's something that is important to keep in mind when you're preparing for mikvah in general. That if it's okay for a second night yantif or it's okay for a Friday night, then it's okay for a weeknight too. Like if you can't perfectly do, you know, cut your, your toenails, it's okay. It's not going to undo your tibula. I think that's my favorite part of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
But me mentioning toenails. <laughs> no, saying it's okay. If it's okay yeah. on, you know, a third night of a yandif, <laughs> then it's okay. Is there anything you'd like to add about making the decision to push off mikvah night because of a logistical complication? So I think that's a really, um, yeah, I'm happy to say something about that. So I think that there's this, when someone's a kala and they're idealistic and their kala teacher is kind of like drilled it in their head that mikvah has to happen on time, on time, on time, on time. You know, life happens. And I think that as with everything else, there's obviously, you know, a need to prioritize and make decisions based on the priorities that you have. I have a hard time with college teachers who make it sound like we said earlier that mikvah is always going to be beautiful. It's always going to be spiritual because if I've learned one thing, both as mikvah director and as someone who regularly uses the mikvah, it's that mikvah is never convenient. Like there's always something that comes up. The appointment times are always either like after you're so exhausted and finally have the last kid to bed and, you know, like, or you've had a super long day at work and you can't imagine going out at nine 30 at night. Right. Like, so either that, or like you said before, it's at five 30, you've just gotten home from work. You're trying to get supper on the table. Your house might be flying and you have to come up with some sort of excuse if you have other people living with you about where you're going. So mikvah's never convenient. And when it's already never convenient and then life happens, sometimes you have to have a hard conversation or I would hope an easier conversation with your spouse about what it would mean to push off going to the mikvah. And I think that we've had a lot more people push off going to the mikvah during Corona than we've ever had before because of a fear that if they have a cold, they needed to get tested before they came to make sure that they weren't going to put other people in jeopardy and relationships survived. You know, it's not as long as it's consensual and there's no resentment between either person in the marriage. And it's because of a conversation. It's not like an assumed thing that it's okay to just push it off. Then I think push it off if you have to. And anything that COVID brought, that you decided to keep? So we're still discussing it, but I think that there are certain aspects of mikvah that won't ever change, like that won't ever go back to the way that they were before Corona. I think that the less, the mikvah attendant became much less intrusive because she, no one's checking anybody's back. No one's checking anybody's hands. No one's checking anybody's feet. And I think that the mikvah attendant at the very least will be least intrusive, less intrusive. And I also hope that the role of the mikvah attendant will really be consent focused. So our mikvah policy has always been that an attendant doesn't do anything without asking, do you, would you like me to do this? And I'm hopeful that other mikvahs will also use that consent language rather than just making an assumption that if a woman's there, she's giving consent. Um, for a mikvah attendant checking her back, for example. This has been such a beautiful and valuable conversation for me, and I hope for everyone listening. Thank you so much for making this happen. Thank you. I would like to ask you to participate in some of the new episodes that I'm working on. Now I am collecting voice notes on your personal experiences if you are an older single or you identify as an older single, you may be only 22. But if you're Hasidish, you might feel like you're an older single. What are some of the experiences that you would like for Jewish women, for potentially Shatchanim to hear and be more aware of what you are going through? So it can be anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes long. You do not have to share your name or where you're from however you are welcome to. And then I'm also working on collecting personal experiences and stories on how you feel about covering your hair. You may have chosen not to cover your hair or you may be struggling with it or maybe you are thrilled to be covering your hair. Maybe you have opinions on how others should be covering their hair. All voice notes are welcome. Please WhatsApp them to 845-642-7636. I will be collecting these and hopefully I will be curating a really interesting and fun episode for you. Now, I just want to explain how this works. If you're thinking, oh, Francisca is going to get a bunch of voice notes, I don't have to do it. 
it can very well happen that no one sends in a voice note. So this is what I need you to do. And I'm asking you with a pretty please from the bottom of my heart, if you have something valuable to share, take out your phone right now and send me a WhatsApp voice note. Make sure to label it singles episode or hair covering episode and send me your message. I would love to feature you on this show. Now make sure to check out my Father's Day special, Mother's Day special, the magnesium special, the birth control panel. We also did a panel on post-SNEA stress disorder a couple of months back. We also did a Botox and plastic surgery in the firm community episode. And over a week ago, I released a solo behind-the-scenes episode on my sixth album release. So make sure to check in on those. We have some very, very exciting topics coming up. And if you have any suggestions, make sure to DM me and share them with me. I'd also like to thank you so much for being a supporter of the Francisco Show podcast. And yes, you are a supporter by listening to the show and by sharing it with your family and friends. And if you enjoy this podcast, you really will enjoy Intimate Judaism on JewishCoffeehouse.com as well as Orthodox Conundrum, Chochmat Nashim, and Let My People Eat. And I have one more exciting thing to share with you. I have created this referral program. And if you send me a client, perhaps a school or an organization that is thinking about launching a podcast or maybe should be thinking about launching a podcast, Now, if they sign up with me because of you, my ambassador program will grant you up to $500 as a thank you. So if you'd like to make some extra money on the side and you like this podcast, this is a beautiful way for you to pay it forward. I would love to help activists, creatives, entrepreneurs, and organizational leaders create fantastic podcasts. Launching the podcast is just the beginning of it. We help produce, we help with content, we help with monetization and audience building. And who am I kidding? By we, I mean I. Thanks for checking in and I hope to see you next week.